often called the Hall of Faith. And I, um, I want to, we're going to do an overview this morning of Hebrews 11, and then in some subsequent messages come back and review it. But uh, what I want to do this morning is I just want to start by reading the entire chapter, because you just need to hear it as a whole. It is such an amazing text. So it'll take about five minutes, but I'd encourage you just to read along, just follow along as I read. It's a great passage of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 11, page 1191. It says in verse 1, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith... It is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, When called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. By faith... Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was able, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each one of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. 
By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So pop quiz, what's the theme of this chapter? By faith, by faith, by faith. It's about faith. So what an important chapter this is because faith uh, is at the heart of the Christian experience. You can't be a follower of Jesus Christ and not have faith. I mean, this is, this is the central thing that we must have in our hearts. We have to have faith in Christ. Faith is central. It's important. So what an important chapter, chapter 11, is for us to uh, meditate on faith. What I want to do this morning is I want to give an overview of chapter 11 to you. Then next Sunday we'll look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, which is kind of the conclusion of chapter 11. It really goes along with it. And then after that, we're actually going to backtrack and I'm going to look at some of these different stories of faith here. So we're not going to delve into every little detail this morning, but I want to try to give you an overview and really just think about what this text is telling us about faith. Uh, So I, I want to look at three points for this morning. Number one, We're going to look at the reality of faith, sort of asking the question, what is faith? I mean, how is it? How do you get it? And we're going to look at that in verse 1. So verse 1 has a lot to tell us. And then we're going to look at verses 3 to 38. (laughs) 
Won't go over every story this morning. But that's the, that's the middle section. That's the heroes of the faith. And there we're going to look at the result of faith. So if you have the reality of faith, what will it look like lived out every day? That's the result. And that's exemplified over and over by these different people. And then verses 39 to 40 is the reward of faith. If we have the reality of faith which produces its result in our lives, what does it ultimately bring us to? What is the reward of faith? So those are the three things I want to look at with you this morning. Let's begin with the reality of faith. It's chapter 11, verse 1. What is it? Well, faith is, verse 1, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So we start off with a little definition of faith. Uh, This is not an exhaustive definition. This does not tell us everything that could be said about faith, but it's an important definition. It's a powerful definition of faith. And I think it's great to start here with the reality of faith because, I mean, let's just be honest. I think faith is something many people struggle with. Some of us are philosophically oriented and we need proofs, we need arguments, we need things to to be cohesive logically for us to be able to buy into them. Some of you were trained scientifically. It's just your training. It's, it's, even before you went to school and studied science, it's just kind of how you were. You were one of those kids who was interested in how things worked. And so for you, you need proofs and evidences. You know, I, I can't believe in this God I can't see, and we struggle with that. Some of us uh, struggle with faith because for a very different reason. It's because we've had our trust severely broken by people in our lives, perhaps by parents or by uh, spouses or, or other people that we thought we should trust, maybe by the church, maybe by other institutions that should be trustworthy but have betrayed us. So when we start talking about putting your trust and faith in some invisible something out there, it's like, you know what, this is a real big stretch for me. I, I have a hard time trusting the people I can see that I should trust let alone some Jesus that I can't see. So so this is an important chapter. This is an important verse. What does it mean to have faith? How do you get this thing? How do you get there? Look again at verse 1. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. So there's a parallelism here. Do you see it? Being certain of what we hope for. And then the parallel line is... Uh, or sorry, sure of what we hope for. The parallel is certain of what we do not see. So according to this verse, faith is a kind of inner certainty and inner confidence that all the things we're hoping for as Christians, you know, eternal life, glory, salvation, heaven, the kingdom of God, it's sort of being confident inside that those things are real is is kind of what that text is telling us. And the thing I have to wrestle with this morning is that I studied this passage as I was looking at the Greek here and breaking it down and looking at commentators. I've become convinced that this is an insufficient translation, that what it says there really isn't what the New Testament Greek is actually saying. So let me tell you what I think it's saying. See, in other words, this is a very subjective definition. It's saying that faith is a personal feeling of confidence and assurance about something in the future. Um, but I don't think that's what it's saying. You know, I mean, we all, right, last year, we had a, an inner confidence that the Patriots could take the New York Giants. <laughs> we had faith. We were assured. And then it came to nothing. <laughs> is, is that what that's saying? Is it just sort of like we're all like the Patriots, you know, hoping that we can beat the Giants, and then someday it just turns out to be, oh, actually, none of that was true. Oh, sorry, you're all wrong. Is that the kind of faith that we're talking about here? Is that what it means? No. 
is, is a different word. Let me, let me tell you what I think this verse is really saying. It says, now faith is, you see that phrase, being sure of what, you can't, what we hope for? That phrase, being sure of, is a Greek word, which is hypostasis. And it's a very philosophically heavy Greek word. It's a word that carries to it not a sense of internal personal confidence, but the word really means, um, we'll get a little philosophical here, but it really means substance or reality or essence. It's kind of a metaphysical, ontological isness. It's something that is in and of itself. It's a very objective word, not a subjective word. Let me show you a place where this word is used. It might be helpful. Put a bark, bookmark here in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Let me show you the word hypostasis again. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews 1.3, talking about Jesus, says, The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His hypostasis, of His being. So Jesus is the representation, the outward, visible manifestation of the being and essence and reality of God. God revealed Himself through Jesus. So, so it's a very... Heavy word. Do you see that philosophically? So now go back to chapter 11 and kind of put, let's plug that word back in. So it's not faith is being, having a personal feeling of confidence. It's something different. It's saying that faith is the reality, the essence, the, the isness of the things that we're hoping for as Christians. You know, and as I was translating that, I just, I, am, I was having such a hard time getting my mind around this. Uh, in fact, I, I went to bed Thursday night, had written the sermon, written the sermon, or, and I was like, ah, not, or almost written the sermon, uh, studying it. I'm like, what does this mean? I woke up at two in the morning, is, I'm like, I'm down, you know, my table reading my commentaries at two in the morning because I'm like, I have to get my mind around this concept. And I think this text is saying something really bold and huge about faith, not that it's just a personal inner feeling that we kind of talk ourselves into. It's saying that the reality, the the essence of the future things we're hoping for have, in a sense, come into us that, that the essence of heaven and salvation has invaded us and taken up residence in us as Christians. So it's an objective thing that's come to us, not a subjective thing we've whipped up inside of ourselves. But, I mean, this is, it's huge. Think about that. It, or here's another analogy. Think about it this way. Um, it's kind of like when you buy a house and you sit down with the lawyers and you get the title on the house at the signing when you finally close on the house. They give you the title. You own the house. In fact, that, that Greek word, hypostasis, can also mean title. In other words, it, it's not just um, theoretical. You actually own something. It's a guarantee or title to something legally. So when you, you sit down with your lawyers and you sign all the papers, right, and, uh, you, and they finally sign the papers and you sign that huge check that you pay, you know, to the lawyers and everything's done and they give you the title to the house. The house is now yours. You haven't gone there. You haven't moved in. You haven't hung your pictures up. You haven't repainted the kitchen like you want to do. But it's your house. It's not just that you feel like it's your house, that you've talked yourself into thinking that house down on Main Street is my house. It's your house. You have a title on it. It's an amazing thing. You know? 
And so now it's yours, and that's what it is. We've been given the title of heaven. God has supernaturally put within us the title and the rights to eternal life. And so when you're a Christian, a real Christian in a biblical sense, not just, you know, you can use the word Christian loosely. I'm talking about a biblical definition of a Christian. Is a person who has received this internal title. The reality has come into their souls and they're going, oh, I'm going to heaven. How do you know? Give me proof. Give me evidence. I, faith. I have faith. Where'd you get this faith? God gave it to me. <laughs> what are you, crazy? That's how it works. God gives you a gift of faith. Look at the next phrase. Look at the next one. Faith is being uh, is the reality, the essence of what we hope for. It's being certain of what we do not see. Again, I think this is an inadequate translation. That Greek word for being certain is the word for proof, evidence, a demonstration. You know, a lot of us here like proof. I want proof. Give me proof. Give me proof that there's a God. Well, for the Christian... The proof is that the evidence has come into our heart through faith. That, that suddenly that unseen, invisible God is real to us. And, and it's freaky. It just happens. And you suddenly have faith. You're like, where did this faith come from? And that the faith itself is the evidence of the reality of the unseen for, for a believer. Um, let me just try to break down how this works. Because this may sound kind of funny and circular. But here's how it works. If you're a real Christian in a biblical sense, one of the evidences that you know you're a real Christian is that you love Jesus Christ. If you don't love Jesus, you are probably not a Christian. You can believe him. You can believe that he was a historical figure. But a real Christian does more than just believes that he was some guy in a historical thing. They love him. And so we come to church services every week and we sing Love songs about Jesus. And think about how wacky this is. What are we doing? <laughs> Why are we coming to church singing songs together? It's like this corporate love fest toward Jesus. It's not just emotions or songs. We say, I want to live for Jesus. I, I want to obey Him. Like, you want to obey a guy who lived 2,000 years ago? Like, what? You know, I want to obey Him. In fact, you know, people have died for Jesus. And if you step back from that, like, what in the world is going on here? Do you just understand how bizarre this whole thing sounds? That we would love a person that we can't see, who everyone acknowledges lived 2,000 years ago. Some believe he died and he's still in the grave. Others believe he rose and he's alive. And we're saying, I love him. I will live for him. I will die for him. Like, what in the world is the problem here, people? You know, are Christians just a certain type of people who maybe aren't very smart, aren't very well educated, um, have just a lot of neediness, you know, and maybe we weren't loved enough as kids. And so we project this need for love onto the, the blank canvas of the universe. And we sort of imagine someone out there to love us. I mean, is, is that the kind of person, are Christians kind of like that? And so they all just sort of gravitate toward this, this theory? Well, I, no. I mean, Christians are all kinds of people. There's no cookie-cutter picture of the Christian. You know, there's uneducated, there's well-educated. So many of the great scientists down through history have been Christians. You know, PhDs, philosophers, doctors, lawyers, soccer moms, little kids. I mean, there's no pattern to it. It's not like just certain people with a certain psychological need gravitate toward this. It's just not empirically true or historically true. 
So it's this strange thing. And so for all these people, they get together and they're like, you know, I've been to college, I'm successful, I'm smarter than normal, and I love Jesus. <laughs> I can't explain it. How did, how did that happen? It just happened to me. I wasn't even looking for it. It came looking for me. What are you talking about? So, faith is a supernatural gift from God. Let me say that again. You have to understand this. Faith is a supernatural gift from God. You don't get faith by reasoning your way into it. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying that faith is therefore irrational? No. I think faith is very reasonable. I think, you know, there there are plenty of reasons to believe that this is the Word of God. There's plenty of reasons to believe the stories in the Bible are true. You know, I could give you arguments for why I believe God is real. I could give you the proverbial Dave Letterman top ten arguments for Christianity. But my point, and it's a reasonable faith, my point is you won't get faith simply by studying those arguments. Okay? If an angel of God stood in this pulpit right now and started talking to you, you might be amazed or freaked out, but you wouldn't necessarily gain faith from it. If the voice of God spoke audibly in this room right now and and you were even convinced that it wasn't just the Baptist trying to trick you and that you were convinced that, like, that's actually the voice of something and it's not just them playing with the sound system... You know, and you're freaked out and weirded out and said something strange just happened in this room. And, you know, the voice said, I am God, believe in me. It still would not give you faith. Because faith is not achieved by sort of piling up logical evidences till it reaches a tipping point. And you're like, well, that's, that's plenty. I mean, again, are there evidences? Yes, but that's not how you get to faith. It's a supernatural gift that comes from God. You know, I think, uh, and this is so important, it means when we give the gospel as Christians, we have to make sure that we teach people from the Word of God because it says in the Bible, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's God's Word that creates faith. And that's important. We need to do that. Because um, so, so, it's not like this. I think sometimes this is how we think of the whole issue of faith and belief. Sometimes we think of it like a jury. We're the jury. God's down there trying to present a case for his existence and he has to prove to us beyond a reasonable doubt through a preponderance of the evidence that God is real. So like, okay, God, give us your best shot. You know? Uh, uh, Well, uh, for exhibit one, uh, I I give you the whole universe, you know, the, the stars in the sky. Well, how do we know you did that? Can you prove it? You know? Were you there? Well, yeah, I was there. How do we know? You can't prove, you know, so you can sort of take this posture of extreme skepticism. And, and I, I, I frankly think some skepticism is kind of a weak, easy place to be. Because you don't ever have to believe anything. You can just sit around and, meh, 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 meh. you know, I don't know about that. Well, you know, and you can just, you never, you know, it's, it, it's, it's weak. It's kind of soft to just be the perpetual skeptic. If you're a skeptic, let me ask you, are you skeptical of your skepticism? If you're a real skeptic, you'll be courageous enough to be skeptical of your skepticism. Okay? So are we just the jury kind of sitting back like, all right, God, prove it to me. Eh, I don't know if I believe that evidence. So we'll go deliberate and we'll tell you whether or not you're real, God. You know, is that, it, that's not how it is. That's not how you get to faith. It's not like God just gives you enough evidence and then you're overwhelmed by the evidence. It's not how it works. It's more like this. 
it's like imagine that all of us lived on an island together. Okay? And we all inhabit this island. We're just this little community of how many people in this room? 350 people. We're all together in this little island. And we, you know, we live together. And we have all one common feature. We're all blind. None of us can see. And we've somehow managed to adapt to life on Blind Island. And none of us can see. We just sort of know how to do it. We know where to get water. We know how to get food. And, and we're just living together, sort of functioning on this island. Things are normal to us. Now, imagine on Blind Island if three of us suddenly, and I don't know how, somehow, could see. Like one day, three of us woke up with sight. And we went running into the middle of Blind Village. We're saying, oh, I can see! And the rest of us would say, you can what? I can see sky. I can see water. It's, it's, what is that? That's a color. I don't know. What should we call it? Blue? That sounds good. That's blue. You know? Like, wow. And, and the rest of us would be going like, what? What's blue? It's a color. What's a color? I, ah, it's, yeah, it's, it's around. It's, I can't explain a color to you. Well, if you can't prove to me that there is such thing as color, you know, why do I think you can supposedly see what a color is, you know? We just, and the people who can see are going, but, 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 but. And the people who can't see are like, well, <laughs> you know, you're not very scientific. You can't even prove it. You know, it's like you just can't see it. That's what faith is. It's God giving sight to the blind. Guess what? We do live on Blind Island. It's called Planet Earth. And it's not a physical blindness. It's a spiritual blindness. It's what theologians call one of the noetic effects of sin. It's what sin does to our minds. We can be very intelligent, very well-read, very educated, but sin renders us incapable of seeing the reality of those things. And, and we're just we're stuck in our sin. And maybe you're going, well, that's not really fair. <laughs> How do I get faith then? You know? Maybe, maybe there's something in you that wants faith. But you're like, how do I get it then if it's a gift? And all I can say is, I know Jesus was in the business of giving sight to the blind. Jesus can give sight to the blind. I love that story in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is walking along and there's two blind guys by the road saying, Son, they hear Jesus coming by, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. And the, the disciples are like, shh, busy. You know, Jesus is busy. You guys are annoying. Keep it down. And they're like louder and louder, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. So Jesus is like, fine, I'll, I'll take this one. He says, well, and I love this question to them. What do you want? I'm like, what do you think they want? But I love it. He's like, tell me. You've got to say what you want. You can't just assume God's going to give you what he knows you want. You've got to tell him what you want. What do you want? And they say, we want to see. And then he heals them. You know? And we have to come to Jesus and say, I want to see. And I believe you can do it. And that God perhaps has even given you faith right now to ask for faith and to ask for salvation. This is the reality of faith. It is a supernatural gift of God. Not irrational. And yet, not something gained through reason. It's a gift. Let's move on quickly here. The result of faith. So that's verse 1. <coughs> yeah. We're going to have stewardesses come around with lunch, and you just <laughs> stay here. Um, yeah. All right. So there's verse 1. But let me just kind of speed up here a little bit. Uh, the next part is the result of faith. If the reality of faith exists in our hearts, one of the ways you know that is it 
Faith, when it's real, produces a result. So how, do I have faith? Do I really have faith? Well, you know, one question is, do I love Jesus? Another question is, do you have this result? And the result is that people who have real supernatural faith from God persevere in faith and in trust in God despite the setbacks and hardships of the world. That's what the Hall of Faith is all about. That's what all these people have in common. They persevered by faith despite the hardships, despite the setbacks. And so they're put before us as example, examples. That's the whole point of this chapter. Hey, if you're struggling in your faith as a Christian and struggling to persevere, look at these people. They're the Hall of Faith and you can take encouragement from them. It's kind of like when you go to uh, Boston Garden and they have the, you know, the retired Celtics jerseys up on the wall. You know? And there's number 33, the bird. And then there's... I don't really know the Celtics. Let me read some. Then there's... Um, <laughs> That's all I know, really. Number 32, Kevin McHale. Zero, zero, Robert Parrish. <laughs> all right, I'll see if I can stump you, okay? <laughs> uh, number six, Bill Russell. Number 17, Havlicek. That's right. I guess. Um, <laughs> Now, and Matt, let's pretend, since we're indulging in, in so many uh, what-if stories, let's pretend we were all Celtics here, and as our first day on the team, we're rookies. And it's like you step on that court, and you look up, and you see those jerseys. You're like, wow, I, I'm on a, on a team that has a legacy of some of the greatest basketball players in all of history. Like, look at, look, I, this is where Havlicek played. This is where, um, you know, uh, those other guys played. <laughs> <laughs> And wow, I'm on the same court, and we're inspired by that. And, and, that's, and that's what this is. It's like all the jerseys of Noah and Abraham and whatever up on the wall. And, and like I said, we're not gonna, I'm not going to go through every one of these. Um, what, I, what I'm planning to do is I'm going to do this overview sermon. Next Sunday we'll look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Then I'm going to go back and I'm going to take seven weeks and just kind of examine different characters. Because this, this text is so juicy, I just don't feel like I can go over it at 30,000 feet. We need to come back to it. But let me just give you two little quick for instances, just two quick previews. What about Noah? Verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and, because, and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So here's Noah, and he's uh, building his ark. And, and this is faith. You know, God told him to build this ark. God says, I'm going to flood the world. And here's crazy old Noah out there building this huge boat. It's like, hey, Noah, how's it going? You know, and he's just like, where's the flood, Noah? You know, year after year, decade after decade, he's building this ridiculous, enormous uh, ship for this flood that he believes is coming. It's It's a wild story. But as a Christian, I read that and I'm like, you know what? I kind of know what it's like to be Noah. Just hammering away at my Christian life. People thinking I'm, I'm just ridiculous for believing the things that I believe. Why are you doing that with your family? Why do you go to church every Sunday? What? You know, why, why, do you, why are you raising your kids that way? Why are you living that way? Why don't you just do this? And, and so I have this really different kind of lifestyle as a Christian that doesn't fit with everyone else. And, and I feel out of place and I feel awkward at times. I feel like crazy Noah building my boat. doesn't go along with the mainstream of the culture around me. And those days when I feel like giving in and just dropping the boat project and being like everyone else, you know, that's when I need to come back, 
look up at Noah's jersey on the wall and go, oh, yeah, Noah, he persevered by faith. I'm going to persevere by faith. Give me the saw. I'm back at it. You know, building this ark of salvation. Or just one more example. Look at Abraham, verse 8. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Hey, think about that. Abraham, get up and go to the place I will show you. Well, where is it? Don't worry, I'll show you. Could you give me a hint? Just get up and go. I'll show you. So by faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was a sojourner, a pilgrim. God told him to leave Ur, which would be today like northern Iraq, central Iraq, right around there. And he went to what would be today the land of Palestine or Israel right in there. And he went there. He didn't know where he was going. God just said, you've got to go. You've got to trust me. And as a Christian, I read that. And I think, man, I can relate to that. Following Christ is it's this weird journey where you say, okay, God, I'll do whatever you say. And he takes you places to do things you never would have imagined. You know? It's like when I was growing up as a kid in Las Vegas, if you told me I'd be a pastor in Boston someday, you know? Seth, when you were growing up in you know, Wisconsin, did you think you were going to be a missionary in East Africa for 12 years? You just don't, you know, but this is what happens. God just takes you on a journey. When you surrender your life to Christ, you go places and He takes you places and He, he calls you out and you don't always know where you're going. Do you ever feel like you don't really belong anywhere as a Christian? even when you're with the people you belong with, and you're kind of like, I just I don't fit in. There's, something's not right. And it's saying, yeah, right. This isn't our home. We're tenting here. Even if you've lived in the same house in Hingham for 60 years, it's a tent if you're a Christian. You're just tenting. And you've got to be willing with an open hand to go wherever God calls you to go, to do whatever God calls you to do. And, and so it's very much that kind of lifestyle. I feel that way about this church. You know, as a pastor and the elders were called to lead the church, and... We do try to lead it. You know, we have vision that we're trying to implement and we're, trying, we're working on a building project. And yet, some days I just step back and I'm like, but you know what, God? This is your church. And, you know, God's like, that's right. <laughs> this is my church. Glad you got that figured out, Jeremy. <laughs> and, and I have to ultimately say, I don't really, you know, we have plans and visions, but you have to hold them so open-handedly because you don't know what God is going to do ultimately. So there's a surrenderedness even when you plan and make efforts and do things where you're willing to just follow the sovereignty of God and the things he throws into your life because we're on this pilgrimage looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. And so we persevere. The reality of faith produces the result of faith, which is perseverance through trials, keeping that invisible goal in mind, And I wish I had a bunch more time, but let me just wrap this up. (laughs) What's the reward of faith? If we have the reality and it produces the results of perseverance, where does it ultimately take us? What's the reward? And it's there in verses 39 to 40. These were all commended for their faith. They were commended for faith. The only way to please God is by faith. As it says back in verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. God God is pleased with faith and they were commended and then I love it yet none of them received what was promised 
God had something better planned for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So today, Abraham and Moses and Noah are still waiting for the ultimate fulfillment and perfection of the promises of God in them. And you go, why, why is God making Abraham and Moses wait so long? Aren't they in heaven with him? Yeah, but they're still waiting for the resurrection and the fulfillment of all God's promises. Why would God make those guys wait so long? For us. He's waiting for us. That just blows me away. He's waiting for me. Because I've got to run my little leg of the race. And only once all His people have run all their little legs of the race, only then will it be finished in God's time and will then receive everything in all of its fullness that God has promised us. I'm doing a uh, funeral service tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. for Jet Davies. Many of us here remember Jet. He's awesome. I mean, that woman, full of faith, full of joy, full of life. You know, they called her Jet because she's always jetting around. And uh, I don't know if I even know what her real name is. (laughs) It's Jet. That's what everyone calls her. And she's always just so energetic, so encouraging, just building up Christians. Her husband is such a man of faith, and, and he just stood by her for 66 years. And now in her last years where she was really struggling, he was there for her. I mean, they're just a picture of faith to our church. And tomorrow we have a funeral service, and tomorrow Jet's jersey goes up on the wall. And that's what we do as Christians when we die. I'll tell you, Christians die so well. We all got to die, but Christians do it best. We die good. You know? There's no hand-wringing and and whining and freaking out. Instead, there's peace and hymns and joy. We believe that a Christian's last day is his best day. And so we're confident. So, you know, we have a funeral and it's sad, but we're putting our jersey up on the wall. And now the rest of us who are left, who know Jet... You know, we kind of look at her jersey and we're like, okay, I remember that. And when I start feeling like I want to get all negative and sour, I'm like, look at the joy of the Lord she had by faith. I want that too. And so it inspires us to run our little leg. And someday we'll inspire someone else. And so the race will continue until God, at the time known only to Him, calls for the end and Christ will return. And then together with Jet and Noah and Abraham and Calvin and Wesley and everyone else and all the Christians we never met that we'll spend all eternity getting to know. Only then, together with us, will they be made perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this gift of faith that You've imparted to us. We look back at our Christian lives and we see that it's just something that we can't even explain. We can't even explain to someone why we believe. It just happened. Lord, we thank You for the gift. And it just the fact that it's in us makes us believe that it's reality. God, I pray that You would strengthen believers here to keep running the race. That You would keep anyone here who's a believer who's feeling weak, tired, burned out, that they would look at these saints of old and redouble their efforts to get running again. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who is 
who is honestly struggling and has honest questions and really has doubts and wrestles with this whole issue of faith in Christ. And God, I just pray that you would show yourself to them and that you would give them grace to cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, I pray that you would give sight to the blind today. That you would give sight to all of us to be able to see your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Would you take that song again, O Church Arise? And would you stand? And as our response, let's sing verses 3 and 4. Come see the cross where love and mercy meet. Come see the cross where love and mercy meet as the Son of God. 